Hey everyone, it's Boo here and welcome to The Few. I actually recorded this podcast a few days ago with Dr. John DiMartini, a fascinating, one would describe, I guess, polymath, fascinating human being who spends his entire life reading and consuming knowledge and imparting that wisdom uh, to the rest of us. He'd read over 30,000 books and obviously he's done pretty well because he lives on his own ship. A ship at the time was off the coast of Halifax in Canada and unfortunately as we uh, hooked up the call it was running late that uh, we couldn't get the connection with the ship and we finally made it happen so the first few minutes of the podcast unfortunately were unintelligible so i thought i'd recap that before we launch into the podcast proper welcome to the few podcast never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few so you want to become one of the few you can't skip steps you have to put one foot in front of the other things take time i have a dream i have a dream hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality don't be afraid to dream big but remember dreams without gold are just dreams This is The Few with Boo. When Dr. John Martini hopped on the call, I asked him straight out the gates, what is purpose and how do we define it? And he was pretty quick to jump out of the gates and give us some insights into what that was. And fundamentally, he was saying that purpose is something that's inside us unless we understand what it is we value, uh, that we're unable to connect with our purpose. And for most of us, we try and connect to external values, be that an Instagram influencer or a material possession, more money, more money, that ultimately our purpose is well known to all of us. As we go through the podcast, he'll explain how he's decluttered his life completely. He doesn't even have a driver's license to enable him to purely focus on what he perceives is his highest value, his true cause, thereby removing the low value items out of his life. I hope you enjoy the podcast. It was absolutely fascinating. We did have to, to cut it off short, unfortunately, but he has agreed to come on again. So hold in tight and enjoy Dr. Martini's podcast on values-based purpose. And creates a avoiding a pain and a seeking a pleasure, avoiding a predator and seeking a prey mentality, a survival mentality, instead of thrival mentality when they're doing something they really love to do. Because when you're doing something that's really highest on your value, you're willing to embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of it. And you're not trying to avoid challenges that inspire you. You're seeking challenges that inspire you. And you go and fill your day and generate creativity, innovation, original ideas, and genius when you pursue something that spontaneously calls you. Mine is teaching. I found mine at 17. I've been teaching since 18 professionally. I don't do anything else. I learned that if you don't fill your day with the highest priority actions that raise your self-worth, expand your space and time horizons, and create energy and self-worth and discipline and reliability and focus, you automatically fill your day with low priority distractions that disempower you and devalue you. And many people do that. And when they do, they don't trust themselves. They question themselves and they offload decisions to other people, which then compounds the injected values of other people. And they dilute themselves into the collective instead of becoming empowered in their own individual path and becoming a non-borrowed visionary by being unique. Because our hierarchy of values are, paid, are literally snowflake-specific, retinal pattern-specific, voice print-specific. They're unique. And when we are living and giving ourselves permission to be our uniqueness, 
we'll probably get ridiculed, violently opposed, and and challenged by the world on the outside to try to get us to fit into the collective. And most people are afraid of being rejected, and they fit into the collective instead of allow themselves to walk and be an unborrowed visionary and create an original idea that brings something of difference, even though yearning inside for everybody to make a difference in the world. So the hierarchy of values dictates their destiny and how congruent they are with their highest values. See, instead of comparing yourself to other people and grading subjective biased interpretations of yourself and disempowering yourself, it's wiser to prioritize your life and, and compare your daily actions to what you value most, which leads me to a very important component is how do you determine what that highest value is? How do you determine what's really meaningful to you? Because as Aristotle said, the highest value is the telos. And he called the telos the end in mind. And the study of that was teleology, which is the study of meaning and purpose. So the most meaningful, the most purposeful, the most fulfilling, the most spontaneously inspiring thing a human being can do is to pursue and give themselves permission to fill their day with the highest priority actions and delegate the rest. And find people who are inspired in their highest value to do the things you want to delegate so you can liberate yourself from abnegation and micromanagement and get on with doing what you love to do. I teach, research, write, and travel. That's it. Everything else is delegated off my plate. I haven't driven a car in 33 years. I got pilots. I got captains. I got people to clean. I got clock changers. I'm hiring somebody to wipe my butt, in other words. <laughs> George Clooney, I told my girlfriend, I said, listen, if I get George Clooney to make love on my behalf, will you still love me? She said, I love you more. <laughs> so I delegate everything and only do what is my core competence that is most inspiring that I can't wait to get up in the morning to do. When you can't wait to get up in the morning and do what you really love to do, people can't wait to get that service. So that's the first step. How do people get awareness? Like there's obviously a, that old saying, ignorance is bliss. And you mentioned it before that often these values in this awareness resides in our un or subconscious. But what does it feel like for these people that, that they have it inside of them, they have this sense, but what would their day-to-day -day look like for them to have a trigger, which is, ah, I need to go and understand and define my values. Well, I think it's the old proverb by the philosophers, unexamined life is unworthy, <laughs> not worth living. And if you're not introspecting and you're not self-reflecting and you're not really doing an inventory of yourself and you're focused on what other people think about you instead of how congruent you are with your own integrity and your own highest values, you're going to be distracted. You're designed to be distracted. Anytime you're not living by your highest values, you're designed to create chaos in your life to give you feedback to let you know you're not being authentic. Every symptom in your physiology, every symptom in your psychology, every symptom in your sociology and your business is a feedback mechanism to get you back onto priority and back to authenticity. But how do you determine values? I went through every imaginable value determination process in the last 45 years that I've seen in the literature. And I haven't been satisfied with it. Most of it is how we ought to be, should be, according to some mother, father, preacher, teacher, convention, moray, tradition of existing traditions, which may be antiquated. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in what you should be. I'm, as Nietzsche said, I'm not interested in ought. I'm interested in what is. I'm interested in what is truly your highest value, not what it ought to be. And so I had to discard most of the stuff I've seen on values out there and develop a more objective determinant. And I'll share those. And I found the most significant determinant I started with was space. You'll find out that in the study of proxemics, your most intimate space, which is about a foot and a half, your personal individual space is about four foot. You got about 12 feet for your social space. And beyond that is public space. One is distal, the public space, and one is proximal, which is your intimate space. Anything that's extremely valuable, the more valuable it is, the more it comes into the proximal space. 
And the more unvaluable, the more you discard it and get distant. So if I gave you an elephant foot or an elephant toenail, and you can't think of anything you would do with that, it would probably go to the trash and be taken away from you. You wouldn't want it in your space. But if I gave you a, one of the greatest books on empowering human beings and human behavior, a classic that's only one copy in the world, you probably would have it right on your desk. You'd keep it right next to you or you put it under your computer so you could be studying it. So anything that's really high in your value, you keep proximal and you keep in your intimate space. I spend hours on my computer within 18 inches of my screen most days, either teaching or researching. So if I look at what my life demonstrates, my computer for the purpose of teaching and or learning is the number one thing in my items that I keep in my space. So if you ask what are the top three items you keep in your most intimate and personal space within four feet that you interact with with your senses and interact with with your motor actions, so you're engaged with sensory and motor interactions and constant decisions. If I look at what are the three most important items that I keep in my intimate space, it reveals what I value most. So that's the first one is space. And in my case, my computer, and if I look at what's the dominant use of my computer, it's teaching. I spend hours and hours a day on teaching. My second most valuable is my little phone and my phone is connected and that phone is research. Believe it or not, I don't talk to people that much. But I'm on here researching every day. If I'm walking to a restaurant or waiting for something, I'm, I've got, I'm learning sitting on my phone. So research is number two. Then if you look on here carefully in my thing, I've got books sitting in around me. I sometimes open a book, read 10 pages and put it back and I'm reading constantly. So I've read 31,000 books almost. So I'm constantly reading, 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 constantly learning, 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 and constantly sharing, sharing, sharing. So if I look at my space, my space reveals what I'm committed to. So that's the first determinant. The second determinant is time. You find time, make time, spend time on things that are important to you. And I'd be willing to bet, we don't know each other that well, but I'd be willing to bet you spend quite a bit of time in the personal development and mastery field and, and interacting with leaders in that field and interact with learning about that field. And you that's your mastery and you can't think of anything else you'd rather be doing than probably doing exactly what we're doing right now, probably. Absolutely. So, so whatever you spend your time is, you find time and make time and spend time on what's valuable. So you take a drone, you look over yourself for a three-month period, you've time-lapsed photography it, and you look at what is the dominant thing you're doing in your time, and that tells you what you value. Because you find a way of doing what you value. And most people, because they've injected the values of others, say, I want to do this, but their life is demonstrating this. I don't go by what people say. I've been doing this 45 years, 50 years of teaching, 45 years of doing this uh, value determination. People lie to themselves. It's like they say, I want to be financially independent, but they keep buying consumables that depreciate in value and they never buy assets that go up in value. So I don't go by what they say. I go by what they live. Your life demonstrates your values. But most people don't know what it is. They fantasize about what they think that they envy in other people, say that's what's important to them then beat themselves up going, what's wrong with me? Why am I not doing it? I sabotage, I got limited beliefs, all this other crap. And what's going on is that they're just not aware of what's really important to them and why they're doing what they're doing. That's why I had to create an objective determinant system and space and time are very great indicators of that. You fill your space with it and you spend your time on it. I have a daughter who's a fashion designer. She makes all my clothes, right? Her space has got fashion designs, fashion stuff, fashion shoes, fashion this, it's, it, it's all over the place. It is not hard to see what she's committed to. 
and what her life's mission is. And by the way, your purpose is an expression of your highest value. Your ontological identity is an expression of your highest value. Your epistemological area of expertise is always an expression of your highest value. So identifying your highest value. On my website, drdmartin.com, there's a complimentary, free, private, usable value determination process for anybody. Millions of people use it. And it's a great thing to get an insight to start. But it goes through these questions I'm talking about. So you can do it right online and keep it there. No one will ever see it except you. The third indication is energy. Whenever you're doing something high in your values, your energy goes up. Whenever you're doing something low in your values, your energy goes down. And that's there to give you feedback. It's giving you feedback to let you know what's priority or not. Because if you're if you got more energy at the end of the day than when you're starting, you're on track. If you're drained, you have been doing something that's uninspiring. You've been putting out fires, doing low priority stuff all day. And you're going, man, I need a break. And you're down in your amygdala and you're going to want to escape and you're going to want to go and go shopping to get anything to get your dopamine of drinking, eh, sex or whatever it is to get your dopamine back up. But if you're doing something that's really deeply meaningful and inspiring, you don't need to go do those things because you're fulfilled. You don't have to fill it full with something else, food and stuff like that, drinking. You just are full and you're inspired and your energy's up and energy is infinite once you recognize that source. But many people are trying to be somebody they're not, trying to compare themselves to others. And then they'd inject those values and cloud the clarity of their own purpose and their highest value. And then they try to lose their identity. They're an imposter syndrome and they drain their energy. And chronic fatigue is a classical example of a complete dissociation away from what's priority. So you look at what energizes you and you look at what the things that energize you most. Well, I bet you don't ever get drained doing podcasts and going in interviews with people that are inspiring in the field. You can do that all day long. You do shows all day long with that. And I can teach all day long. I just got through doing 11 days straight, 14 hours a day and just finished that program the other day. So I don't have any lack of energy. There's never a lack of energy when you're doing something congruent with what's deeply meaningful that inspires you that you can't wait to do. And you don't need as much sleep. A lot of the research on sleep is based on people that are uninspired and they're setting that as a standard. Because I went 35 years with only four hours sleep and still got more energy than anybody else. And I'm 69. <laughs> so I don't buy the idea that you've got to do all this stuff because people that are inspired that I know are, are on roll. They're busy doing what they love doing. So you look at threes is energy. Number four is money. You find money, make money, spend money on things that are valuable to you. You don't want to spend money on things that aren't. And if somebody tries to sell you something that's not important to you, you resist. And they call you greedy and they resist. And they'll use emotional blackmail to try to get the money out of you. You resist. It's not important to you. So people that look at their money, if I was to go through your disbursements of all your money, all the dollars that come in and where it's going, the hierarchy of how that's spent tells you what your values are. The hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. And I found out, I've interviewed over 100 billionaires now. I assure you, people that have a high net worth have a higher value on money, higher value on wealth building. And the people that don't, don't. They'd rather spend their money on other things. And so I tell people, if you want to go and build wealth, unless we shift the values, it's not likely. So that's the fourth one. The fifth one is where are you most ordered organ and organized in your life? Because whatever is highest on your value, you tend to bring order and organization. I'll bet you're completely organized and ordered in all your guests, all the content, all the information, anything to do with personal development, anything to do with mastery, anything to do with leadership, anything to do with achievements. I bet you got it all organized. You know where things are. You could go to it in a second. I'll go crazy if I can't find it. That's for sure. <laughs> Trust. Think about this. Imagine your car on how to repair cars. I'll bet you're not organized there. Yeah, I don't, I don't repair my own car. That's for sure. 
I don't even drive a car. I haven't driven a car in 33, almost 34 years. <laughs> I delegated that long time ago because anything that I required motivation on the outside to do, I delegated to specialists. Anything that I have procrastinated, hesitated, or frustrated about, or I need any form of motivation, is not inspiring to me. So I delegate it. I yeah. find somebody who loves doing it, the best person I can, delegate it off, free myself up to go and do what I love doing, which produced the most and gave me financial independence. People say, well, because you're wealthy, you could do that. No, I got wealthy because I did that. Yeah. The next one is, where are you most disciplined, reliable, and focused? What is it that you don't ever let yourself down on? You just go and do it. You get it done. Mine's teaching and you're researching. I've done vast amount of research and a vast amount of teaching, 300 to 400 speeches a year for 50 friggin' years. <laughs> and a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews. People think I'm nuts. But... <laughs> It's because that's what I love doing and I don't have anything else I need to do. So I just fill my day with the things that I love doing. So if you prioritize your life and fill it with the things that are inspiring to you, your energy goes up, your order goes up, your discipline is amazing and you don't need to be reminded. You don't need outside motivation. Outside motivation is a symptom, never a solution for human beings. I'm not a motivational speaker. I have no interest in rhetorical persuasions to get you to do something that's not inspiring to you. I'm interested in you finding out what you're intrinsically driven to do, structure your life so you can give yourself permission to do it, and get on with doing something amazing with your life. The next one, after the sixth one, number seven, is what are you thinking about, about how you would love your life to be that is showing evidence of coming true? So if you think about, so I think about being an international sex symbol, but there's zero evidence of that coming true. That's fantasy. But being an international professional speaker and stepping foot on every country on the face of the earth, I have thought about since I was 17, and I spoke in 194 countries now. So I'm absolutely certain that that one's coming true. So what are you thinking about, about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence coming true? It has to be what you would love. It has to show evidence. No evidence, don't write it. It's not what you love, don't write it. What do you think about, about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence coming true? The next one is what are you visualizing? about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence coming true. The funny thinking is the frontal and parietal cortices. The visual is the occipital cortices. And the next one is, what are you internally dialoguing with yourself about how you would love your life to be that's showing evidence coming true? The temporal region, Broca's areas and Wernicke's areas, and the fusiform area. So I'm looking exactly how the brain, if it's gestalt and it's integrated and you're authentic, all of them are lighting up because there's a congruent vision, auditory, and sight, and you automatically see it in your mind's eye. When you're living by your highest values, the medial prefrontal cortex gets blood and glucose. It has a connection to V5, V6 on the medial portion of the parietal occipital lobe, which is V5, the associative areas, and you have the most amount of visual imaging in your mind about how you want your life. And you have now people with a vision, they flourish, people without a vision perish. So when you're doing low priority things and you're amygdala, there's no connection to that V5, V6, there's no associations, you've lost your vision. So that old proverb is a true science in the brain research. So you see it in your mind's eye. You can say it and articulate it. The clearer it is in your mind's eye, the more fluent you can speak it. So if somebody asks you, what are you up to? You can articulate that fluently and congruently, which engages and inspires people and creates a ripple effect on other people to help you achieve it. There's a magnetic, charismatic, vital energy that comes out of people that are congruent. And the next one is, what do you consistently want to converse with other people about, about how you want your life also? What do you want to talk about? When you go to a social party, you, if you get to talk about that, you'll talk all night. If they go into a different area that's not inspiring to you, you'll shut down and look at your clock and be bored and want to go home. The second you get back on the track, 
well, what's important to you? You're the leader. You become extroverted. You become energized back on the game again. So what is it that you keep wanting to converse about and want to talk about? The next one is what inspires you and brings tears of inspiration to you when you're doing it? And what is it that inspires you and brings tears to you? Who are the people that inspire you and brings tears to you? I've been studying all the great philosophers, all the Nobel Prize winners, all the great leaders, the great religious leaders, spiritual leaders, business leaders, anybody that's done extraordinary things that's done something on the planet. I've been researching their lives for 50 years. And anytime I do and I see something, I learn something new that inspires me that I can't wait to share with people, tears of inspiration confirm that I'm now authentic and that's my path. And that's been one of the greatest guides we have, the tear of inspiration. It's a confirmation of authenticity. The next one is what is it that you have is the three most consistent, persistent goals you have about how you want your life that shows evidence coming true. What are the three most consistent goals? Mine was that I want to go to every country on the face of the earth and research and share my research findings and help people live extraordinary lives. Okay. I want to write a series of books. I'm sitting about 300 books now. I'm constantly, what I set out to do, the three most goals, they're manifest. So I basically consistently focus on that and manifest whatever that is. That's the thing I'm looking for. Because you don't give up on things that are high in your values. You only give up on things that are not to remind you to go back to what is. So when people say, I failed at something, no, they don't. They just got feedback to let them know that what they're pursuing isn't really it because they wouldn't stop if they were really inspired by it. They wouldn't give up on it. They would just go and see it as all feedback. People that are doing the highest value in their life see everything as feedback. People that are doing lower values see things as either success or failure. And I don't seek success. I don't avoid failure. Both of those are depurposing, repurposing feedback mechanisms to be a man on a mission. I'm a man on a mission. And a mission is way more powerful than the label of success or failure, which are transient. They're outside circumstances, not inside drives. And the last one is what are the three most consistent things that you keep wanting to feed your mind and learn? What do you spontaneously want to learn? If you go to the bookstore, what area of the bookstore you keep going to? When you go online, what are the most common things you keep searching? What's the essence of what you keep searching? When you're in a situation where you're wanting to learn, you go to seminars or go watch TV or whatever, what is it that you're drawn to and engaged in most? The top three things you're engaged in. Now, if you do these ex this exercise and answer three questions for all 13 questions, three answers for all 13 questions, I guarantee you, if you do it accurately and you're honest, you will see an absolutely clear pattern repeated all the way through it. And then you go and you all 39 answers and you ask, okay, on the first answer, how many of the times has that been repeated? And you cross them all out. And in my case, teaching shows up 13 plus times. And then I go researching and writing, comes up 12 and a half times. And then I go traveling the world, shows up next. And the next one is building a fortune and doing what I love and getting handsomely paid to do it. So I'm a multimillionaire 50 times over now because I did what I loved and I made sure I did something that inspired and met people's needs. There's never a lack of money to people who care about humanity and meet people's needs with what they love to deliver. So if you look at that, it will reveal what you value. Now it's wise to structure your life around that. And I help, I love, that's what I love doing, helping people find out what's valuable, get honest, get out of the BS, get onto what's true, and now start structuring your life to go and fulfill that and start delegating the lower priority things and get on to doing your service to the world. And don't live in a fantasy you're supposed to do things without service. Because people think, if you go and ask people by the millions, how, what, what's the most meaningful moment in their life? I guarantee it's something they did that made a difference in somebody's life and they said, thank you. It's very true. And it seems to be a, uh, an element of society that we're moving away from. In, in fact, we've seen to be becoming more insular, more self-serving, more internally focused. How do, we, how do we break that at a societal level? Well, 
the greatest teacher is exemplification. Just do it. Yeah. Don't focus on outside people and now fixing other people because you only want to fix people on the outside that represent a part of you you're not doing on the inside. Just go and do it. Just go be inspired and go prioritize your life and organize and watch the ripple effect. The ripple effect will touch more people's lives by doing it than anything about talking about trying to fix other people. It's quite a cognitive process. It's structured. Some of the recurring themes there, actually, one of the things I love the most is talking about space. And one of the things we talk about as a fighter pilot is the ability to create space or awareness. And we conceptualize it as a bubble. And we try and create big situational awareness bubbles, which give us space to make decisions. And when our bubbles are small, that's when we become overwhelmed and we find it very difficult to do anything other than be passive, passive and reactive. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. But when it comes to the logic of this process, where is the spiritual? Where does the spiritual element fit in here? And how does one reconcile the inexplicable in across with the demonstrable? Okay, great question. The most inspired state you'll be is your authentic self. That's your calling. That's your metier. That's your telos. So when you're giving yourself permission to live by highest priority, where you spontaneously are inspired to do, where you exemplify what's possible for other people, and you're doing a service that's deeply meaningful, that makes a difference in people's lives, and they're saying thank you, you're actually having a gratitude attitude on a daily basis. And your blood glucose and oxygen goes to the forebrain. The forebrain, the executive center, is the seat of the self, according to Scientific American October edition 2022. They call it the seat of the self, the seat of integration. It's the most inner neurons in the brain. That area is also called the gratitude center. And that state is when you're in a state of grace. That's when you feel authentic. That's when your agonist and antagonist muscles are working in sync and there's a dance, not a resistance in life. That's when you have the most resilience and your space and time horizons are biggest. So your space horizons get bigger and your time horizons. It was Seneca who said you measure an individual by their most distant ends. What's the magnitude of space and time in their innermost dominant thought? And I'll tell them the level of conscious evolution they've attained. How are they playing in the game of life? So if you're sitting in like Elon Musk, he's thinking in terms of the whole solar system, all right? Yeah. And some people are living in their backyard. You know, I, I've said in my, my life that unless you have a vision, at least as big as your family, don't expect to be number one in your own life. If you don't have a vision as big as your community, don't be expect to be number one in your family. If you don't have a vision as big as your city, don't be expecting to be number one in your community. Unless you have a vision as big as your state, don't expect to be doing something on the state, city level. And unless you have a national vision, don't expect to have an impact on the state level. If you want to make a difference in the nation, have a global vision. If you want to make a difference on the planet, have an astronomical vision. Yeah. But you, unless you have a vision bigger, you're not going to make a difference below. And when you're congruent, you spontaneously achieve what you say. You walk your talk and you give yourself permission to keep growing the space and time horizons. And in the area of the hippocampus, the hippocampus has place cells and the interrhinal complex in the brain has grid cells. And they're involved in social hierarchies and space and time horizons. So when you're living congruent, you have the maximum space and time horizons and the most amount of gamma synchronicities in the brain to be able to process the most amount of information most efficiently through time and space. So it's prioritizing life that counts. And most people don't realize if they don't prioritize, if they don't fill their day with the highest priorities, it fills up with low priorities. 
And if they don't pursue challenges that inspire them, their life fills up with challenges that don't. If they don't tackle problems that inspire them, their life fills up with problems that don't. If they don't use their time, their energy, they feed their mind with priorities, hang out with people that are priorities, associate with priorities, they're going to disassemble their power in life. And their spiritual quest, the state of grace, the state of love for what they do and the gratitude for life, the state of equanimity or objectivity or moksha or you know, satori or whatever it is in, in the various traditions is nothing but that state. That equanimity state is in a state of thank you for being able to do what I love on a daily basis. When you have gratitude for what you're doing, you're loving what you're doing, you're inspired by your vision, you're enthused by your work, you're certain about the contribution you can make, and you're present doing it, you've got a spiritual path. And many people confuse an amygdala-based spirituality where they're in a phobia and they create a dissociation philia fantasy, and then they think of going and escaping, and they think that's spirituality. And many people trap in that state. Well, I call it pseudo-religiosity. That's what Einstein called it. Instead of true religiosity, which is very grounded, very practical, very meaningful, very inspiring. And when you stop and think about it, if you're in a state of equanimity and not narcissistically looking down on people, you're meeting their needs. And if you're altruistic, you're sacrificing for them. It's non-sustainable. But if you're in equanimity within yourself and equity with yourself and others, that empowers your social life. It empowers your business, your relationship to your employees. It empowers your relationship at home. It allows you to keep your homeostasis and your autonomic nervous system so you don't have autonomic dysregulation syndrome and you have more resilience. It allows you to be inspired by life because you're seeing life through a lens of on the way, not in the way. And your finances are going up because your self-worth is at its peak. It's such a powerful framing of spirituality and highlights how hijacked spirituality becomes by those who are, you know, really using religion to serve themselves. There's some wonderful people who are into a dogmatic practice of religion, but I think that was very articulate in how you define spirituality. I studied 3,000 different religions. I got an encyclopedia of religions out when I was in my 20s, and I studied 3,000 different religions. Anything that had 50,000 followers or more, I studied them. And I've written books on different types of religious constructs. I was looking for the perennial philosophy that underlied that. And I realized that the evolution of religions on the planet from the animistic and shamanistic and geomorphic to zoomorphic to anthropomorphic, all the way up to astronomorphic stages of religious development are all brain development. It's just an expression of our own brain as we've developed our brain and myelinated into the forebrain of our brain, which takes us eventually to the highest level of religious understanding, which is pure symmetry, elegance, and beauty, and mathematical abstraction, which is the cosmos, the study of the cosmos on its most advanced level. We once had religions, so Judaism, Christianity, Islam, were basically Aristotelian geocentric models. We're way past that today. We're at a cosmic model today. We're looking at the observable universe and billions of years across and stuff, and possibly infinite. I'm interested in living with, as Einstein said, when he talked about true religiosity and holy curiosity and not sitting in stagnant traditions, because we have to keep moving. Because whatever we knew is continually growing and nobody can even keep up with all the knowledge. I mean, I research every day and there's no way I can keep up with it all. So our understanding of spirituality is, if it's not growing, it's stagnating. And spirituality is not some dogmatic thing about punishment rewards. It's the lowest, most banal. As Kohlberg says in his stages of moral development, the bottom level is punishment reward. The highest level is transcendence and grace. And that state is what I'm interested in and helping people because that spirituality is universal. It's not monologue. 
it's not a sitting in one location, you know, in one little area, and it's not Arabic, it's not Jewish, it's not this, it's not, it's not any one little location, it's, it's universal. I'm interested in universal expression. And that's why the pure symmetry, pure mathematical abstraction of symmetry, proportion, and order, as the ancient Greeks said, is probably the pursuit of waking up the magnificent of that grace in your life. And I don't want to limit it to just little boxes of locations, because we're going to be traveling in the next hundred years in space. And all the stuff that was on the planet is going to be a stepping stone. It could be our stumbling block if we don't, we try to take that into space. We have to go beyond that and transcend those boxes. Are we able to? Is there a level of consciousness now that allows us to transcend ourselves? Is what we're seeing now the last vestiges of our unevolved form is humanity? No, there's a whole scale. If you look at it, there's a whole scale from the very bottom of the fundamentalists that are black and white and they, they can't see gray, that's subjectively biased and absolutisms to all the way to, to relativity and perfect symmetry of the mind. Wilhelm once said it in 1895, the father of experimental psychology said it beautifully. He said, when you can see simultaneous contrasts, literally simultaneously, you have the highest level of awareness. When you're in one side subjectively biased and you only see one side, you're infatuated, you're conscious of the positives, unconscious of the negatives, or you're in resentful and you're conscious of the negatives and unconscious of the positives, you got in-group, out-group biases, you're sitting there in prejudice, you're sitting in discrimination, you're exclusive, not inclusive, you're sitting there and not seeing the whole, you're not mindful, you're basically mindless. That's the religion at the bottom that's basically black and white and right and wrong. And that's primitive, that's childish. That's the kindergarten class. The highest is the realization of the magnificence and seeing it. That's why the overview effect for cosmonauts and astronauts when they go into space and look back at the earth, they realize it's neither positive nor negative. The location means nothing. It's a non-local, ever-present state of being. That's way more spiritual than the box, in my idea. But those are stages. When you were in first grade, when you went to science class, they told you that a little atom was a little sphere, a little ball. And you had these little blue, red, and white things, and you made these little models out of it, and you thought atoms are balls. You go to high school and you find out, no, it's a Bohr model. It's a proton, neutron, a little electron go around. It's a little solar system, and it's got shells, you know, SPDs and all that. And then it goes a little further, and you go into college, and you find out, no, it's not that either. It's quantum numbers. It's probably distributions of complex mathematical equations with a square root of negative one. And that, that's just an abstraction. It's getting more abstract. Then you go on to your PhD and you find out, oops, there's flaws. There's infinitesimals. They have to put renormalizations in there. It's not exactly it. But I had to teach them the illusion for they're ready for truth. Well, that's what religion does. It has to teach the illusion until people are ready for truth. And everybody in different levels of reflective awareness are at stages ready for ever greater levels. That's why most people, by the time they're 30, have migrated through different stages of religious awareness and kept migrating until they found the one that they hit their head in. And they hit that paradigm. They go, okay, this is the one that matches where I'm at. And everybody in the hierarchy goes to their places. And everybody's needed. you got to have kindergarten class. So everybody in the religious constructs are needed. But the question is, the quest inside our soul is, as uh, Emerson said in his essay on circles, the soul keeps taking us to new concentric spheres and breaking old paradigms and just keeps us growing and keeps us expanding into the infinite. And to me, that's the holy curiosity of the, that infinite journey that is the ultimate purpose and not stagnating. We cannot have growth if we don't start without it. If we don't start somewhere, there is no growth. There is there is nothing. So, so that there has to be a journey. Dr. Dumanteti, thank you so much. I do wish we got to start a little bit earlier. It's been such an incredibly enlightening conversation and your perspective on life, particularly around the accountability for life and that it's ultimately you and your decisions and your journey of discovery and personal growth. And whilst for many of us, we're probably not going to have the... Uh, 
opportunity to read quite as widely as yourself. Thank you for being a navigator on this journey. But more importantly, thank you for accelerating my own journey with some of those insights today and no doubt many of the other folks on here. In order for people to unlock and learn more about their values, how can they find you? Where can they get some of this incredible information? DrDmartini.com, D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. If you go there, it'll lead you and just say, determine your values, find that. And it's a little step-by-step process. It's private, it's public, and you can store it there and you can look at it again and do it again in a month or quarter or something. Do it again. Because the first time I'm almost certain you will lie to yourself. You'll write down what you hope it will be, what you think it should be, what it ought to be instead of what your life demonstrates. Answer the questions honestly and it will be very valuable. I've been doing value determinations 45 years. I've used it in businesses and governments. I've used it all over the place. Millions of people use it. I am certain it can help people navigate the BS that they're letting their life be run by instead of the real core thing. The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself with other people's values. Why be second at being somebody else? Why not be first at being you? And don't go out there and blame things with false causalities and false attribution biases on the outside world. It has nothing to do with what's out there. It has everything to do with your perceptive decisions and actions, which you have control over. And you can take anything out there that's ever happened in your life. There's nothing your mortal body can experience that your mortal soul can't love and you can't use to your advantage. So don't be a victim of history, be a master of destiny. That's what I tell you. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Martini. Those links will be under if you scroll down in the show notes. And hopefully we'll have another opportunity to speak and for myself to maybe attend one of your next events. So thank you, Dr. Martini. Thoroughly enjoyed the podcast today. Thank you very much. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.